So this morning, I wanted to fit right in with your series on what works. Essentially, intentional life decisions that lead us to something better. Because the best way to see the world is how Jesus saw it. The best way to see God is how Jesus saw God. And the best way to apply Scripture is how Jesus applied um, um, Scripture. So you guys have been talking about that with faith and community and forgiveness. And this morning, we talked about a servant's heart. And we just talked about the trial of Jesus and how you can either build your life on the back of a war horse or the back of a donkey. Uh, Tonight, I've got a similar point I want to make, but just with a different image. I want to talk to you about being intentional about loving people first. Being intentional, particularly our enemies. We're going to talk about um, that. That's a more difficult thing. Jesus told us to love our enemies and bless those who despitefully use us. In other words, how Jesus saw the world is part of being humble and considering others better is even when people do you wrong, um, you should be able to bless them. And I know that that's easier said than done, but I got to be honest, Jesus showed us how that was done under pretty severe circumstances. And so, but I, w- I want to look at um, a guy named Jonah uh, tonight. Um, and so we're going to read from Jonah chapter 4 in just a second, but that's the end of the book, so I need to set up the book, okay? So this is the entire book of Jonah in about three minutes, uh, so you have to pay pretty close attention, and then we'll, we'll look at what this scripture um, does say. So there's this guy named Jonah, he's the son of Amittai, um, he's a prophet that actually, frankly, isn't very good at prophesying. Um, he's, only, he's only mentioned uh, once in the whole Bible, it's in the book of 2 Kings, he prophesied that God would expand Jeroboam the second's territory, turned out he didn't do that. So everything, everything Jonah says doesn't really come true. He's, he just, he struggles uh, with this. And so God calls him to prophesy to Nineveh. Now this is the problem because Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian empire. Uh, and the Assyrians were maniacs. Um, I had somebody with a straight face a couple weeks ago tell me, oh Shane, can you believe the world's never been worse than today? Uh, that is not true. That is not true. Uh, this is one of the best times to ever be alive. The Assyrians were running, uh, you know, were ruling about half the world at the time, and they were lunatics. I mean lunatics. They were clearly the enemies of the Jews. In the book of Kings, it tells you some of the things they did. History tells us other things they did. Like they went into a whole region, and they buried people from the neck down and just let them die with their head coming out of the, uh, out of the sand, being eaten by bugs and things like this. Uh, they, uh, Tiglath Pileser ordered the gang rapes of, of all these women in Samaria in order to create a mixed breed of people that wouldn't fit in in either place, and they were called the Samaritans. Uh, the, the Assyrians also, if you cross them, they, they did something called peeling or filleting. Um, what they did, they didn't tend to crucify. They did sometimes, but they, the, what they, their preferred method of execution was to peel you. What they had done is they had mastered the art of cutting people's faces off. Like you could, you do just where to cut and they'd peel your face off and leave you alive as an example. This is what happens uh, when you mess um, with us. As a matter of fact, there was this one story about this small farming community and the rumor got around that uh, that they were going to come against the Assyrians. Like think Gore, okay, or think Tokoroa or some little place like that, right? And so Tiglath-Pileser took his army into this little thing, and he found the farmer that was leading the result and uh, the, the revolt, and he um, he killed his six children in front of him, and then he had his wife raped to death, and then he put his eyes out so that the last thing he ever saw was that. Then he cut his nose off, cut his ears off, and his eyes were already put out, and he left him alive, and he announced, "This is what will happen to anybody who comes against." Us. I actually have a very gross picture I want to show you. This is, um, this is a, a Ninevite judge that was caught taking a bribe. 
And so his sentence was to be skinned alive. As you could see, they tied him down in the middle of town and they start at the ankle so that you'll live the longest and they just, they just skin you alive. His son became the next judge and so uh, uh, Sennacherib said, you know what, just so his son doesn't forget what happens, he took his father's skin and wrapped it in the judge's chair so he'd remember. And in other words, these people were maniacs, right? So God says, Jonah, I want you to go preach to them. <laughs> Jonah reasonably says, uh-uh, no, no, nothing I say comes to pass anyway, and, um, and I, I'm partial to keeping my skin. So Jonah runs to Joppa, and it gets on a boat towards Tarshish, and, and so he gets on this boat with pagan sailors. And then the irony hits, because there's this storm that comes up, and it turns out the pagan sailors care about human life more than God's prophet. God's prophet says, I'll just kill me. They're like, we're not going to kill you. You're a human being, bro. We're going to throw our prophet overboard before we throw you overboard. And so the irony that the pagan sailors cared about the things of God more than God's prophet did. Finally, finally, they do throw him overboard. And it says that he sunk to the bottom of the ocean and went past the gates of Sheol. And so he's encountering death in the realm of the dead. And then God sends a fish down to rescue him, and he's in the belly of this fish, and he prays 10 perfect prayers from the book of Psalms, and then after three days, God tells the fish to throw up another act of grace, but instead of throwing him up in the open ocean where he would drown, he throws him up next to dry land. That's a really, really important thing. He throws him up next to dry land, and that dry land is next to a road, and that road just happens to go to, you guessed it, Nineveh. So Jonah gets the idea. He goes to Nineveh, and he decides to preach. Here's the thing, he preaches the worst sermon ever, ever. Takes eight words to say it in English. It's only five word long sermon in Hebrew. Here was his whole sermon. 40 days from now, you're gonna be destroyed. See you later, right? No why, no how, no what do we do? Nothing, he just tells them they're gonna be destroyed. Why? Because in Jonah's mind, they're evil. You skin people, you rape people, you murder people. You're, there's no way God would ever, ever want to be kind to a group of people like you, namely the enemies of Israel. The whole thing backfires. And it says that Nineveh repents, even the greatest to the least, even the animals fasted. And so it says that God decided to repent with the people of Nineveh. It says, so the people of Nineveh repented their evil, so God repented evil which leads to all kinds of questions like, is God allowed to repent of evil? And does God ever need to repent of evil? And does God ever respond to his own altar call? There's this beautiful sort of thing going on in there about where God is when we repent. When I was a teenager, we, I went to revival camp um, in America. It's just something we do. And, and the revivalist took a baby doll and he set the baby doll on fire. And of course, the baby doll's made of plastic, so it's right? And he said, this is what God's going to do to any of you if you don't repent, right? Yeah, I know. Don't be too shocked. It's in a lot of churches' doctrinal statements. So anyway, so, they, so he, he, he's holding this burning baby doll. Of course, we're, come, we're flying down to the front. We're terrified. We're traumatized. And then you get to the front, and the baby doll's starting to smell from the burning plastic. And then Jimmy throws up, and the guy's like, demon, he's got to do it right now. It just smell. Anyway, the problem with the revivalist was, in his story, God was above us demanding our repentance to be nice. But in scripture, if you're ever willing to go through the pain of repentance and you're looking for where God is, he's kneeling right beside you repenting with you, right? It's called divine mirroring. So, so it says the Ninevites repented their evil, so God repented evil. He, he repents 
with them. Now, Jonah gets ticked off about this. Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew that you were a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God, a God who repents from evil. I knew you were going to be nice. I hate that about you. Jonah wanted mercy for himself, but then justice for everybody else, particularly people he didn't like. And so when he gets confronted with God's kindness for people he thought was wicked, ooh, this was a real problem. Now, if you're a linear learner, uh, you're caught up. If you're a linear learner and you rather learn in lines, right? I, I did this for you. This is a sort of a summary. Uh, when we run from God, we run to the strangest places. That, that when, you, when, you, when you run from wherever God wants you to be, it never delivers what it promises. It's always strange when we non-consent to God's wisdom. I remember when I was the church counselor, there was this 18-year-old girl. She was in a toxic relationship. Her parents didn't approve, and they shouldn't have approved, right? This guy was very toxic and whatever. She came to see me, and she said, Shake! I'm tired of my parents telling me what to do. I'm tired of you telling me what to do. I'm tired of the pastor telling me what to do. I'm tired of God telling me what to do. I'm going to show all of you, and I'm going to go get married. And I thought, so your solution for being tired of being told what to do is to enter into an institution designed to have someone else tell you what to do, right? <laughs> this, this wasn't... This wasn't going to work very well. When we run from God, we run to the strangest places. We also learn that God is generous with his grace. No matter how far Jonah ran, God was always out in front of him, basically reconsenting in love, saying, have you had enough of the consequences of your own actions? Have you, have you had enough of the bed you made? And nowhere in this story is God actively punishing anybody. It's the consequences of our own actions that create things. And God's always out in front of us going, you can have it your way if you want, but if you're tired of yourself, I'm here to save the day. God is generous with his grace. We also learn that God wants to get us back without ever paying us back. And that's big. That if you're ever, no matter how far from God you are, if you're ever really ready to return, what you find is God wants to get you back without you owing anything. The early church said you could read the whole Bible through the prodigal son story, that there's unity and peace and wholeness and then bad decisions that end up hurting our lives. And if we're ever willing to come back, all God wants to do is cook us a meal and eat together. We also learned that great moves of God Start with a revelation of the love of God for us and them. Now, you're caught up. This is Jonah chapter 4. This is the end of the story. This is how it ends. Verse 5. So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter. And he sat in its shade. And he waited to see what would happen to the city. In other words, I can't wait for God to destroy these wicked people. Then the Lord God provided a vine, and it made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. If you're, if you're the type that takes notes, that's a key sentence. He was very happy about the vine. But, but at dawn the next day, God provides a worm, and he chewed the vine up so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that it grew faint. And he wanted to die, and he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. So now we have a suicidal prophet here. He's not going well. Right? Keep going. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? A rhetorical question. You had nothing to do with it. It wasn't even here yesterday, bro. Do you have any right to be upset about something you had nothing to do with? Jonah doesn't pick up what God's putting down. He says, I do. 
I'm angry enough to die. Keep going. But the Lord said, you've been, the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and then died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? In other words, Jonah, if you're allowed to be upset about something you didn't create, am I allowed to be upset about people I did create? Your call, bro. But, but they're wicked to you. To me, I love the person. The people matter more than what you think about those people. Hey, Jonah, if, if you're allowed to be upset about something you didn't create, am I allowed to be upset about people that I did? Ooh. Now, if you're a linear learner, here's some three application points. One, we learned that we can run from God, but you can't outrun him. You can run from God, but you can't outrun him. You also know that God wants to get us back without paying us back. But here's where I want to park for the rest of the night, because this is so confronting. What we learn from the book of Jonah is this, is that it is possible to surrender to God's moral will for my personal life and still not be connected to God's redemptive plan for the whole world. It's possible to surrender to God's moral will for me and still miss the point about God's love for them. Especially people we think aren't like us. The Democrats. The Labor Party. The left. Those people over there that don't look like us. It's, it's one thing to surrender to God's moral will for my life. But the question is, have we connected ourselves with God's redemptive plan for everybody? Or do I want mercy for myself and justice for the wicked other people, right? You see this in Jesus's life. So there's this point in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus is coming out of Jericho. And let me just, before I read this, let me just, I'm going to point out something that you'll see. There's no wicked people in this story. There's no Roman soldiers. There's no pagan governors. It's just Jesus and people following Jesus. That's called Christians. Jesus and people following Jesus, and they have this weird encounter with a blind man. Now, in their world, being born blind is sad. That's true in our world too. In their world, it went a step further. If you were born blind, it meant not only that you were blind, it meant you were an enemy of God. Because somebody somewhere sinned and God's getting his pound of flesh on you. Remember they ask him, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus is like, what year is it? Are, you, are we still thinking that way? But that's how they thought. So, so think about it. If, you're, if, if you see a beggar and you think he's the enemy of God and he's getting the punishment somebody in his family deserved, for you to help him is sort of like weird. Like, are you coming against God's judgment here? So there, there was, it was social outcast sort of stuff. Now with that in mind, let's look at the story. This is Mark 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. And a blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting at the roadside begging. 
When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now watch the response of the people following Jesus. But many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. So in this story, followers of Jesus are rebuking the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus and failed to see the irony of that. Do we do that? Have we ever been guilty of rebuking people not like us because they're disrupting our pursuit of Jesus? We prefer our own comfort to God redeeming them. And so we sort of rebuke them. Have you ever seen a Christian on the internet call out an entire group of people that he deems an enemy of God and that person prefers their own doctrinal stance than God's love for those people, right? And it makes you wanna vomit and you actually do a little bit in your mouth, right? That's this, followers of Jesus, People fully surrendered to God's moral will for them, totally disconnected with God's love for the person that they deemed an enemy of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 what are you doing? Call him. Now, I've got to be fair to the disciples here. They're very quick learners. This, if you keep reading, this is how the story goes. The beggar, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, beggar. Don't you think, don't you see we're following Jesus here, Right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm here for him. I'm all about that guy. And the disciples were like, really? Beggar, it's your lucky day. He wants to speak to you. They changed just like that. But here's the thing that this, con this is so convicting. These are people that were fully devoted to Jesus's moral will for them, but they hadn't yet connected to God's love for people not like them. That's this story. Which leads me to a few questions that I think we need to ask. Are we overlooking the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? Are we overlooking the poor, the afflicted, the marginalized? Or let's just take it further. Are we overlooking people not like us that we deem as enemies of God? Are we overlooking God's love for them at the altar of our own pursuit of Jesus? Like, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but Jesus is not labor or liberal, Democrat or Republican. Jesus is building his own kingdom, right? Like, like Christians in the South in America, they think Jesus is Republican. And he wants them to have guns, right? Of course Jesus says, like, bust a cap, said Christ. Like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, uh, like, 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 like. Like they're pro-life, but then they're also pro-gun and they don't see the irony. Okay, so, but Jesus isn't Republican or Democrat or labor or liberal or, or national or whatever your political parties are, or, or left or right. Jesus said the kingdom of God's not coming in a way where you could say here it is or there it is. The kingdom of God is people responding on the inside. Are we overlooking Let's say it this way. Are we overlooking them in our own pursuit of Jesus? Do we want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else? Or let's say it this way. Are we pursuing God's will for us while ignoring his will for the rest of the world? It's maybe pursuing Jesus and loving our world is the same thing. Just, okay, 12 seconds for the Bible nerds, okay? If you're a Bible nerd, 
right here, all right? If you're not, tune me out, okay? Just for 12 seconds, I'm coming back. Okay, so in Greek, he's into it. In Greek grammar, there's something called first attributive position. In first attributive position, that means when the conjunction and is used, if it's in first attributive position, the first condition and the second condition are exactly the same. So Jesus said, the fulfillment of it all is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a first attributed position, which means to Jesus, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is the same thing. In other words, you cannot separate loving God from loving others. As a matter of fact, uh, okay, if you're not a Bible nerd, you can tune back in now. Okay, so there's a whole book written about this. It's a brilliant thing. It's a must read and it's a very short book. It's called 1 John, okay? And 1 John, the Apostle John, it's five chapters of basically what difference does it make if your love for God and your rightness about doctrine doesn't lead you to being a more loving person in your world? You've missed the whole point. If you say you love God, but you have no love for your neighbor, you're a liar, right? This is the whole point. You can't love Jesus and not be a more loving person in your world. And then Jesus said, what good does it do you to love your friends? Anybody can do that. Jesus called us to love them, the other. If you're a Republican, the Democrat. If you're a liberal, the Labor Party. If you're right, the left. Can you love them like you love yourself? Or have we overlooked the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? Jesus, I don't care about who you love. I'm following you and fail to see the irony of that. Back to Jonah. Three questions let's ask about Jonah that I want us to unpack here. One, how does the book of Jonah end? Two, what is the first and only description? What is the first and only description of Jonah being happy? And three, what is Jonah doing when he's happy? How does the book of Jonah end? What's the first and only description of Jonah being happy, and what's he doing when he's happy? Okay, first, the book of Jonah ends with a question. You care about your plant? Am I not supposed to care about people? Which is a terrible way to end a book. Unless that book is meant to be a sermon that's discussed in communities of faith. Which is how they used it. Hey, how do we think about our enemies? Like, do we care about plants more than people. How does the book of Jonah ends with a question? What is the only description of Jonah being happy? The only description of Jonah being happy anywhere in the whole of scripture is when he was sitting in his own temporary pleasure and comfort hoping God destroys people not like him. Which is unbelievable. Think through the book of Jonah. How many, how many opportunities did Jonah have to be happy? A lot. Here's a few. And Jonah was called by God despite his past failures, and he was happy to be called by God. No. And Jonah, was, Jonah ran from God and lived to tell about it. 
No. And Jonah got on a boat with pagan sailors who happened to be nice people who love human beings' lives more than their own personal profit. And he was so happy to be on a boat with nice people. No. And Jonah got thrown overboard, and instead of drowning, God saves his sorry behind from certain death by sending a fish at the exact right moment to save him. And he was so happy to see the fish. No. And after three days in the fish, God told the fish to throw up because it was getting pretty disgusting in there. And he was so happy that the fish threw up. No. And instead of the fish throwing up in the open ocean where he'll die, he threw up next to dry land. And Jonah was so happy to be thrown up next to dry land. Ha-uh. And he threw up next to dry land, next to the road that was taken and where he's supposed to go anyway. And he was so happy to see that road. No. And Jonah preaches the worst sermon ever preached in the history of the world, and they did not hold him down and skin him alive. And he was so happy to keep his skin. Uh-uh. And Jonah's worst sermon backfires, and it becomes one of the great revivals of the time by an entire city repenting and coming to God. And he was so happy that his sermon worked. No. And Jonah was given a plant by God to give him shade, and he sat in his personal comfort, hoping God destroys people. Now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> what a maniac. Do you know anybody in your life that their Christian faith is simply sitting in a climate-controlled room, anonymously posting rants on the internet about other people? This is us. Jonah is happy when he's sitting underneath his plant. He's the happiest when he's in his temporary comfort, ignoring permanent people. Let, let, let's say it this way. God says, you care about a plant. I care about people. Jonah, you're happy when your plant lives and you're angry when it dies. I'm happy when people live and I'm angry when people die. Jonah, how you feel about your plant, that's how I feel about people. How you feel about your plant is how I feel about people, which leads me to this question. What if we were 10% more concerned, 10% as concerned with people as we are when our temporary pleasures get taken away? Look at the COVID pandemic. The government asked us to put thin strips of cloth over our face. And people acted like, I had people with a straight, this is the most oppression ever. Which leads me to Nero. The Roman Empire. Are you kidding me, man? One little, one little temporary pleasure gets taken and we lost our mind and we lost sight of God's love for people over that? Embarrassing. Plants. Here's the problem with plants. They're good. Who gave Jonah his plant? God did. Plants are not wicked. They're good. The problem with plants is that they're temporary. They're temporary pleasure. And here's the thing. God wants us to have the grace to enjoy our plants without feeling guilty unless our love for plants take precedence over people. Right? Like, I, I give you a couple examples. I love, there's some plant, New Zealand is a country full of plants. 
I'm being metaphorical here, right? They're like, yeah, that's right. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. Plants in this story are a metaphor for things that give us temporary pleasure. And I love them. Most of us would live in climate-controlled housing. We live in a country with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water, and our task machines that do washing, or other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free, at least affordable. This is a country full of plants. And let me be clear, I love it. I love heating. I love aircon. I love paved roads. I love Wi-Fi. I love Netflix. Netflix is brilliant. Just make people say, oh, Shane, there's wicked stuff on Netflix. Don't click on it. <laughs> Friday night entertainment in the Assyrian Empire was coming to town square watching someone be skinned alive. Netflix is better. <laughs> but it, have you ever had the Wi-Fi in your house go out? <laughs> oh, no. Oh. And then you realize really quickly how much your life depends on it, right? And what happens? The Wi-Fi goes out. What do you do? Well, for most of us, we don't know what to do. So what do we do? We unplug it, wait 10 seconds, and plug it back in. And hopefully that works. If it doesn't, you got to call Telstra or Spark or whoever is the service provider. And that's ours. You're like, oh, no. We're upset about our plant. What if we were just 10% as upset about injustice with people as we were when our Wi-Fi goes out. We could change the world if that happened. Imagine that. Like here, I, I tell you something I love. Okay, so on, on my phone, I have an app that lets me watch all my live American sport in full HD right there. I love it. But it's a plant. It's temporary. There was a big baseball game on the other day. My team was playing. and I had to drive from Rotorua to Taronga. And I was excited about the drive because I could just put the game on on the Bluetooth in the car and listen to the game and make the drive go by faster. So there's a road from Rotorua to Taronga. Do you know how many Ks of that road has any signal at all? <laughs> I got four Ks out of Rotorua. And it went, and I was like, oh, no. And I was very angry about my plant. What if we were 10% as concerned about injustice with people as we were about the things that give us temporary pleasure? See, see this, Great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle with a couple questions. N number one, how do we think about our enemies? Like, I don't want that to throw away line. Like, really? The them, the other, the people who don't look like us, think like us, the people that you've heard deemed enemies of God, how do we think about them? In Jonah's story, this was the Assyrians, people who raped Pillaged, murdered, and skinned alive the Israelites. Whatever your problem with the labor party, it ain't them. Right? How do we think about our enemies? And where have we justified, well, if God knew what they did to me? Hold on. We're talking about the crucifixion and the Assyrians. And Jonah's being confronted with, hang on, God loves people like them? Yes. 
Have I been surrendered to God's moral will for me, but totally disconnected from God's will for everybody else? Are we still us and them thinkers? Are we acting for temporary pursuit or permanent progress? Nothing wrong with our plants, but they're temporary. And God is calling us to love permanence, people, more than the things that give us temporary pleasure. Number four, is there any place I've forgotten my fish? Is there any place, like in this story, God rescues Jonah from his wickedness in this supernatural way, only to find out that Jonah still wants God to destroy people because of their wickedness. Sometimes we just need to remember where we would be had God not rescued us. Because if we ever lose sight of where we'd be had God not rescued us, then we'll lose sight of our responsibility to be loving to them. I mean, where, were, where would we be had God not touched our life? Two more questions. Do we believe or do we really care? Those are two different things. Well, I believe in Jesus, so. Demons believe in Jesus. To be a group of people who believe in Jesus just qualifies us to be a room of demons. Like, it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's a whole other thing to allow Jesus to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. That's two different things. In Mark 10, those people believed in Jesus, but had lost sight of Jesus' love for somebody they deemed wicked or they deemed worthy of judgment. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? You can't follow me and lose sight of my love for them. Do we believe? Do we really care? That this morning, the whole point, if you missed it, I would urge you to go watch it. The whole point was you can build your life as a war horse using your power to oppress people or a donkey using your power to equip and promote and uphold people. It's the difference between how Pilate saw the world and how Jesus saw the world. Pilate built his life on the back of a war horse. Dominance, dominance. I'm using my power to oppress you. Jesus built his kingdom on the back of a donkey. I'll use my power to help you, equip you, lift you up. Tonight, this morning was war horse or donkey. Tonight, if you need an easy way to remember it, it's, it's plant or people. This morning, war horse or donkey. Tonight, plant or people. We can live for our plants, temporary things that give us temporary pleasure. Nothing wrong with them, but they're temporary. Or we can live for things that are more permanent, people. I'm urging you, my brothers and sisters, to prioritize people. What works? Well, what works is a servant's heart. What also works is prioritizing love for people over things that give us temporary pleasure. Plant or people, it's your choice. But how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, and how Jesus applied scripture demands that his followers care about people more than plants. So let's have a moment of prayer together. I want us to cancel the white noise of our week and I want us to pray a few prayers. Just right there under your breath, I want you to pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. May no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. We can't present Jesus as a war horse or someone that cares about temporary pleasure more than people and expect people to accept that. 
May no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. Number two, Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart about where I've preferred plants over people? Where I've preferred my temporary pleasure and my preference over your love for people not like me. Third prayer, Holy Spirit, would you empower me with a grace to love my enemy? Would you empower me with a grace to love the people that I perceive as my enemy? May we show the world what the kingdom of God is like. Love for people instead of plants. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be part of your night. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I bless you to know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know that he's entrusted you with his message for this country and ultimately the world. I bless you to be people who care about people more than plants. May we wrestle with that all week. God says, hey man, if you're allowed to be upset about something you didn't create, am I allowed to be upset about people I did? And may we side with the heart of God and prioritize people over plants. What works? Servant's heart and people matter. Servant's heart and preferring others better than ourselves. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your night. Grace and peace, everybody.